Yes, indeed. The Almanac. The Almanac of Ireland. This programme is about to begin. Definitely. But let's first address the issue of waiting a bit, of, of patience. Like, how long would you be prepared to wait before this thing actually kicks off? As long as it would take for a heron to swallow back a goldfish from your pond? Or for a dandelion to close its leaves at night? Or, or a butterfly to dry off and stretch its wings once it's emerged from the chrysalis? Or what's the likelihood you'd wait there where you are for as long as it takes for the earth to spin on its axis? 24 hours, the entire lifespan of a mayfly. Probably not, huh? We're, We're not very patient. Not compared to octopods, anyway. Octopus vulgaris, which is the, the main octopus found in Irish waters, sits on her eggs for, for up to two months, like depending on the temperature of the water. She just sits there, never leaving to feed or to stretch herself during all that time. Most um, of the mothers will, will soon die once their eggs hatch. But even the octopus vulgaris can't compare in terms of patience with her cousin, the Granelidone Boreo Pacifica. This common octopus of the Pacific was observed in an underwater canyon in California's Monterey Bay, sitting on her eggs for not just two months, or, or even three months, or four months, or five, or six, or seven, or eight, or nine, or even a year, or even a year and a half. The Granelidone Boreo Pacifica sat there on her eggs, her 160 eggs, without eating, without leaving, just sitting there, using her arms occasionally to fend off attacks from the crabs, which of course increased the longer she sat and the weaker she got. She sat there for not just a year and a half, or two years, or even two and a half years, or even three years. She sat there, gradually weakening, wearying, still managing to fend off crab attacks, readjusting her arms occasionally to better protect the eggs. She sat there on the rocky canyon ledge, deep, deep underwater, in pitch darkness, for not just three or three and a half or four years. She patiently gestated those eggs for four and a half years before finally they began to hatch and she was free to die. But, but thank you, you've now given me almost three minutes um, before this programme starts. So I suppose we shouldn't tarry any further. We have things to say and places to be. And now for something completely different. Yes, indeed. For this chapter of the Almanac of Ireland, I want to delve into what I suppose you could call an Irish obsession, the weather. Although in truth, most nations are probably obsessed by their weather. We're just maybe more compulsive by nature. Oh, and I think I'll need that ocean sound effect again. Yeah, perfect. Okay, let's begin. I'm in Ballycastle, County Antrim. And the weather is divine. And there's actually mist rolling off from the hills above Ballycastle straight onto the sea. I don't think I've ever seen that before. 
Maybe one of the reasons we love to talk about the weather is because there is just so much of it. On any given day, it seems, we can go from this... The day is beautiful, a totally blue sky above me, a few tiny smattering of black sky just on the horizon, to this. Another weather report, another few hours later, and now the wind is literally blowing me off the side of an Atlantic cliff. The rain is powering through my jacket. And while I understand why so many of us complain about all this unpredictability, I set out to find out at least one redeeming feature about this climate of ours. I didn't have to look very far. There's been numerous uh, times when the weather has actually changed the course of Irish history. This is Damien Corliss, the man who literally wrote the book on Irish weather. Oh, by the way, the name of the book is Looks Like Rain, 9,000 Years of Irish Weather. And Damien has lots of stories about how, if it wasn't for the weather, we might have a different culture. We would have been under the thumb of uh, the King of Spain, which might not have been good. Lovely sallow skin and lovely speaking Spanish instead of our Irish. That would be nice. And Damien even has a story of how the Irish weather inadvertently eked revenge on a brutal English overlord. But there's one question I really hope Damien can answer. Is Irish weather horrid as we think it is, or should we look at it differently? It is horrid. It's been bad for the last 4,000 years. (laughs) It's been worse for the last 4,000 years. The Arabs of North Africa a 1,000 years ago could not understand why anyone would want to live on an island that was stuck in the middle of what they called the Sea of Perpetual Gloom. (laughs) That was their name for it. (laughs) That was their name for it. And the Romans on the other side of the Mediterranean called it Hibernia, the land of winter. Perpetual winter, basically like, yeah, sort of an ice realm. Okay, so it has been grim for a while. It's been grim for a while. I love. I remember hearing sometime that like people have been in Ireland for nine thousand years, as you say, since seven thousand BC, but um, they've been in England for like up to forty thousand years. Yeah. So they were obviously there looking because they could see Ireland from across England, but just thought, no way, I'm just not going near. Not it. doing that. No, <laughs> no. Why? Why would they? <laughs> But when Ireland did acquire an established population, they had to somehow deal with the challenging climate. You know that old phrase, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. And uh, the Irish stuck here (laughs) for their sins, developed something called the Irish mantle, which was a wraparound garment, which the English said that it wasn't just their clothing, it was their tent. You know, it was sturdy enough that you, you could you could spend the night in it, basically. In fact, the Irish mantle was so well able to deal with our weather that the English troops who invaded Ireland in 1599 as part of the Nine Years' War died in their thousands for lack of similar robust clothing. And one of their quartermasters begged his superiors to be allowed to get Irish mantles for his English troops but uh, it didn't happen, and they lost that one. <laughs> so basically, the English, the clothes the English had developed were perfect for their society, for their culture, but they come over here, and just like us going on a ski trip or something, we're suddenly a different world, and you need different clothes. You need your equivalent to your North Face. Precisely, yeah. <laughs> so maybe actually that's our problem. Maybe the Irish, the weather would be lovely here if we all had a big 
heavy woolen blanket that was heavy with her own fat and grease. Maybe. <laughs> you wait and see with climate change now when their government will be cutting back on carbon and they'll be issuing us all with big woolen mantles, you know, <laughs> laced with lanolin, <laughs> with cheap grease and human grease to keep the world weather out. Another way of dealing with something you can't control, like the weather, is to find somebody to blame it on. So the Irish Celts did just that. They came up with a goddess of bad weather who was responsible for their climate catastrophes. This is the Cailach, was the it? The Cailach, yes. She had various other titles. Uh, she was the old hag of thunder. She could conjure up bad weather if she ju- just was in a bad mood, basically, you know? And um, she had powers over animals. She could take the form of rivers and mountains. And uh, she had a magic wand for doing all this. And the Cailach even had the power to extend the winter, if she was so inclined. And she'd decide this on her feast day, the 1st of February. And the legend had it that on this day, the 1st of February, she would come out and she would go around collecting uh, firewood together through the rest of the winter. But if that winter was to be a long one, the Kailach would arrange for the 1st of February to be a bright, sunny day. Not, mind you, to give joy or a spite to her human worshippers. Oh, no, 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 no. She'd give the people a really bright, crisp day so that she could collect more firewood. So so the more firewood she collected, the, the worse you were in for, basically. It's a nice way of thinking about winter. The winter is this personification of, it's like Durga, like the Hindu god Durga, this god of destruction and violence and chaos, uh, who just gets whipping, keeps on whipping it, whipping it up until eventually, as you say, the 1st of February, something magical might, she might then decide to recede. Yeah, or she might just be in a bad mood. But the influence of the Cailach went far beyond Ireland. In Celtic populations across Europe, the Cailach became associated with the badger, who would forecast the weather by sticking its head out of its set on her feast day, the 1st of February. And if the weather was good, the legend goes, the badger would see its shadow and retreat underground to sit out the winter weather to come. Legend also has it that ancestors of German Celts imported this story into America, where the badgers morphed into a groundhog. And that, of course, gave the world Bill Murray, or or something like that. I forget. Anyway, groundhogs are great. And I hope that by now you, like me, are starting to acquire an appreciation for the quirks and vagaries of Irish weather. If not, though, here's that one redeeming feature of the Irish climate that got me so intrigued at the start of this story. Because our weather is so bad, there's been numerous times when, you know, the weather has actually changed the course of Irish history. And one of those times was in 1588, when an enormous fleet of ships from Spain, the Spanish Armada, was pummeled and destroyed by something called the Protestant wind. The King of Spain, Catholic King of Spain, wanted to invade Britain. England had just gone Protestant not so long before and they really feared this invasion to turn them back into a nation of Catholics. 
King Philip of Spain assembled a fleet of 130 ships in Lisbon and sailed off to war. To make a long story short though, the English defeated the Spanish just north of France and chased them north towards Scotland, where the wind intervened and sealed the fate of the Spaniards. They were blown around the, the top of, of Britain. From there, the Spanish commander tried to chart a course back home to Lisbon via a long detour across the north coast of Ireland and down the west coast. But as we all know, they never made it home. A relentless wind swept the ships off course. And 24 ships shipwrecked between the coast of Antrim and the coast of Kerry. And 5,000 Spaniards died. Only 67 of the 130 ships made it home to Lisbon. In England, meanwhile, the wind that sank the other 63 Spanish ships became known as the Protestant wind because it kept the Catholic invaders at bay, thus ensuring England remained Protestant. This wasn't the first time that wind conspired to change the course of Irish history. In 1688, the Protestant William of Orange marched into London and deposed the Catholic King James in what became known as the Glorious Revolution. Across the water in Ireland, a Catholic army was gearing up to set sail in support of King James. However, a second so-called Protestant wind blew against the Irish troops and stopped them from ever leaving Ireland. But the wind wasn't always on the side of Protestants. In Ireland in the early 20th century, one wind in particular brought good fortune to some people. The British government launched the very first old age pension scheme in 1909 and it applied to Britain and Ireland. But you had to be 70 to qualify. It wasn't the most generous scheme in the world. And Apparently, you couldn't qualify for the pension if you were a drunk, if you were insane, or various other disabilities. That's okay. You need a pension, especially if you're drunk or if you're insane. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what they were doing was the officials here, because a lot of people didn't have birth certs or anything like that, so they were asking people if they remembered the night of the big wind. The logic here was if you remember that particular night, you must be over 70. However, a lot of people were suspiciously young looking <laughs> and uh, when they did the figures after the first few months of the pension scheme, they found that the uptake in Ireland was far higher than it was in Britain. <laughs> when was the big win to be? 1839? 1839, really? yes. Really? Yes. How the hell did I know that? Just around the famine. God, that was a bad time. It was a bad time, wasn't it? But if you ask someone, they probably wasn't being, they weren't being unfair. It's just if you ask anyone, do you remember the big wind? We all remember a big wind, like it's Ireland. <laughs> oh, this was a hurricane. Okay. Dublin was described by one newspaper as a sacked city. The place was destroyed. Various towns around the country were destroyed by it. Forests, entire forests were flattened. And as one report put it, herrings fish. They'd been taken up from the sea and they were found six miles inland. Come on, man, that's <laughs> biblical. And uh, it didn't take long before the Irish authorities abandoned the practice of questioning people about whether you remember the big wind. <laughs> Too many people were just cheating the system. 
So when you look at it in a certain way, I suppose the weather isn't always our enemy. In fact, as well as saving us from Spanish subjugation, our capricious climate even took its revenge on possibly the most loathed Englishman in Ireland. And there's a real rogues gallery of reprobates in that particular category. I'm talking about Oliver Cromwell, whose barbarous reign of brutality swept through Ireland in the 1640s and 50s. It's believed he contracted malaria while waging war in Ireland and was struck down in August 1658 by complications associated with the disease. On and off for a few weeks he suffered what were described as fever, gout and pains in his bowels and his back until eventually he succumbed. Having killed thousands of Irish civilians and soldiers indiscriminately and sold many more into slavery, it was our wet, damp weather, the perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes, that got him in the end. And we have much more to say about Irish weather in future episodes. But as this is an almanac, I want to leave you with one final random fact that was sparked, actually, by Damien talking about herrings being blown six miles inland. It's not actually to do with herrings at all, but with herons and how they used to be trained to kneel or to bow when a bishop gave a benediction before dinner in the medieval age. But that's a whole other story. I promise I'll try to return to it at some stage. 